Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project based at Queen Mary, University of London and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit our website autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at at Autism Cinema. If you're a fan of this podcast, please do spread the word, leave us a review, share our episodes on social media, or just drop us an email to let us know what you like about the show. On today's episode, let us take you back to the early days of cinema and the dawn of the sound era via one of film's most celebrated figures. Grab your bowler hats and your canes and join David, Lillian and Ethan as they investigate the autistic aura of a certain Mr. Chaplin. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Autism Through Cinema podcast for another episode. My name is David Hartley and I am joined once again by the wonderful Ethan Lyon and the wonderful Lillian Crawford. Hi, both of you. You all right today? Hello. Good. Hello. Very good. Good. <laughs> Glad. Not too bad. I mean, we've you. already established that prior to hitting record. We're all fine. <laughs> um, we're all right. Good. We're all good. Less okay, hot. So, Less uh, hot. Yeah, we're currently recording on one of these very hot days, but we're in the morning, so hopefully not quite as hot as we could have Absolutely. been later on. Absolutely. We're not melting just yet. Um, right. So today <laughs> we are um, going to be discussing the 1931 uh, classic silent romantic comedy City Lights, the Charlie Chaplin film. Uh, very exciting to be talking about this. We haven't yet covered any kind of silent era of film um, films. So this is uh, this is new ground for the podcast, which is great. Um, this was suggested by Lillian, and Lillian has prepared a uh, has prepared a written statement ahead of time to uh, <laughs> to introduce City Lights for us. So I will now pass over to Lillian, and uh, yeah, take it away. Thank you. Um, so when I think of the comedy I enjoyed as a child, it was mostly silent. Um, from Warner Brothers cartoons to Pixar shorts, narrative was told through two key devices: image and music. The opening sequence of Charlie Chaplin's City Lights is much like those cartoons. The little tramp is unveiled, fast asleep, in the arms of a new statue, with much squeaking and squawking from the onlooking crowd and a bustling tempo in the score. In today's discussion, I would like to focus on these basics of cinematic storytelling and how they connect with autistic audiences, of what silent cinema used as its narrative devices and the extent to which those fundamentals have persisted and been lost in the noise of the sound era. Let's not forget that Chaplin made City Lights after the dawn of the talkie. Released in 1931, it is the last of Chaplin's films to make no use of talking whatsoever, although it is only used fleetingly in modern times and at the um, iconic climax of The Great Dictator thereafter. The simple fact is that Chaplin never wanted anyone to hear the little tramp speak. His voice in its muteness transcends time and space. He is a universal character, as clear today as he was in the first three decades of the 20th century. The key aspect of silent acting, especially in the comedy genre, is exaggeration. As an autistic person, it can be challenging to read the subtleties of emotion, the subtexts or non-literal meanings of 
what is said when someone says one thing and means another. These nuances are simply easier to read when writ large on, the act, on an actor's face, and key details are rendered through intertitles. Chaplin himself wrote the score for City Lights and his other films, um, the preservation of which is sadly rare, but an essential one to supporting the images he creates. Scoring is the most important aspect of feeling in a film for me, as music is particularly capable of manipulating the viewer's emotions. Um, there are moments in City Lights when these components work together in a, in a way I feel to touch on the sublime. The, the film's um, final moments wherein the tramp is first seen by the flower girl, played by Virginia Cheryl, after her surgery, makes me tear up just at the thought of it. The music and expressions of their faces planted so firmly into my memory. For me, it is the greatest scene in cinematic history. Enough tears for now. Uh, I want to know how you two connected with City Lights and your relationship with the silent mode of filmmaking. Simply put, do we need words anyway? Well, we can all pack up now. The listeners won't have seen the pair of us just clapping like <laughs> yeah. enthusiastically on us. Yeah, silently clapping, I should say, because yeah, I have my clapping, sound off. Yes. Yeah. Um, Although there are sound effects in this film, which are important. also very true. <laughs> yeah. um, any words I could say would uh, feel redundant after that opening. However, I will endeavour. Silent cinema occupies a very similar space for me in relation to movement and expression. But silent cinema was something I came to much later in life when I became a proper film fan. Uh, as a child, again, the things which made me laugh most were the broad, uh, stylistic comedy of someone like Jerry Lewis or uh, Warner Brothers. Uh, with students and Tex Avery. But um, as I've grown older, I've realised that I connect very strongly with sort of those exaggerated gestures, which somehow transcend simple, the, the simple tics and facial recognitions that we use in conversation and become something a lot more universal. This was only my second chaplain, actually, of the, t of the great silent comedians. The one I always gravitated towards more was Keaton. And um, I think it, we, we had a discussion about this, Lillian and I, a few days ago. Um, if Chaplin is pantomime, and Chaplin was, was acknowledged as the greatest pantomimist of the 20th century, I think it's fair to say, certainly the, uh, cinematically, then Keaton was farcical. Keaton is about um, crazy stunts, invention, and physical risk while maintaining a certain deadpan expression. It's, it's what happened with the body rather than what happened with the face. Mm -hmm. And I found that perhaps easier to get on with, especially as somebody whose own conception of his own movement sometimes is perhaps a little more bull in a china shop than he would like. <laughs> this was my first time seeing City Lights. I must say, and this is the second, as I said, this is the second chaplain. My first chaplain was The Gold Rush. The Gold Rush is still my gold standard in terms of chaplain. I adore that film and I adore its dark, it's very black comedy, uh, and its sense of the surreal. Having said that, I very much enjoyed City Lights. I thought it was a very beautiful film, and the sequences with Virginia Cheryl in particular uh, never failed to make me tear up, uh, especially the ending, which is one of the most remarkably subtle and brilliant endings I've genuinely ever seen and 
I would say it, it's the high point of the film by a thousand miles. So yes, that's my impressions so far. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, it was my history with silent cinema. I was similar actually to you, Ethan. Um, you know, didn't really take huge amount of notice of silent cinema until I until I sort of turned my academic attention to to film, I guess, and then sort of did that whole kind of catching up with all the classics thing that you do when you decide that you like film. Um, and going back to the to the silence to them. And again, I was similar. I, I connected quite well with um, with Buster Keaton. I liked all the, the Keaton films, particularly The General, which I thought was, and uh, Sherlock Jr. as well, which is a film I really like. Um, the, the scene in Sherlock Jr. where he's sort of morphing between from the cinema screen and in, into life is just like, it's just so wonderful. Um, but I also, caught, I, so I, I think I preferred Keaton for a while. Um, and I remember watching a lot of Chaplin films many, many years ago, including this one. Um, and enjoying them at the time, but not really um, connecting with them particularly strongly, um, uh, except for, yeah, I, I'm the same. I, I really liked The Gold Rush at the time, I seem to remember at the time. Um, but it was really wonderful to come back to the City Lights uh, now, uh, having not watched it for a long, long time. And I also watched Modern Times as well last night, um, just to sort of refresh on that. And I realised I have never watched Modern Times all the way through. I'd seen bits and pieces of it, but I'd never watched the whole thing. Um, I actually, I actually didn't like Modern Times as much as City Lights. I think City Lights is is more successful with its individual comedic moments than there, there are a few ones in Modern Times where I was a bit like, okay, all right, Charlie, move on now. Let's let, let's <laughs> uh, let's go to something new. Um, but um, but Modern Times had a sort of smoothness to it. I think it just sort of it moves from. Um, from moment to moment, sequence to sequence, with a kind of, uh, yeah, a sort of smoothness of. I guess it's it's that feeling of being within the within the city that it's that it's set in that everything feels like it kind of naturally happens one after the other, even though it's a sequence of you know silly situations effectively. Um, and yeah, of course, the the ending is so is so beautiful. But what from what you were saying, um, Lillian, about. Um, about you know do we need words and and what is the effect of um words and sound coming in so it's such a fascinating film this because you know i was reading around it and and this is was it took a long time for chaplin to make this film um he was a bit of a perfectionist i think on this particularly on this production and wanted to get it absolutely right and it took him quite quite some time and during that time you know, sound came in, the talkies came in. He was resisting that. Um, he was very uh, unsure. He thought it was going to, he didn't think it was going to last. He didn't think that talkie films, he said it, they'd give them like three years or something and then they wouldn't last. Um, and there's a sort of certain interesting sort of stubbornness there about him thinking, no, this is what I do. This is what cinema does. Um, you know, I'm the best in the world. This is what this is what we will carry on to to do, and and I quite and this, that tension is all is is constantly running through City Lights because there are bits of sound in there. There are uses, especially the, the bit where he swallows the whistle and the whistle keeps whistling all the time. There's a bit where he lands on the piano and people and the piano dongs, you know. So there are very <laughs> specific moments of sound use of sound, which in and of itself is quite. Um, it's almost quite a genius move because it's like he's yeah. it, it's like he's 
acknowledging the presence of sound, which he's doing reluctantly, but he's acknowledging that it that it, it can have a use and, and it can be used as a punchline or as a, as a kind of uh, an underscoring a moment for sound effects anyway. And the whistle is a good example of that. Um, but also he's not letting the whole, he's not letting sound overwhelm the thing. And I think he's absolutely right to not give the tramp a voice as well, because by that point, the tramp is that figure and with a voice, it would change it somehow. It would undermine that what's going on with, with that character. And, um, so, you know, all these years on, we, we can say that perhaps he was he was correct to sort of resist giving the, the, this this figure a voice. And by doing that, what he ha what he has there is this character, the tramp, who is um, nonverbal, effectively. And and, you know, there's a lot of discussion within uh, neurodiversity, neurodivergence and autism about um, being minimally verbal or having selective mutism, which is something that I think is a common experience among some autistic people, not everyone. Um, but the decision to to not want to speak or talk for a while is something that some autistic people need to do. Um, there are many autistic people or autistic children in particular who don't develop speech for a while, um, maybe partly because they are not sort of in a way kind of not wanting to or not wanting to add into the volume of sound in the world but actually stay within a kind of bracket of quietude not silence but quietness um and in a in a curious way the the tramp becomes a symbol of that in some ways and and particularly this film because chaplin is making such an effort to resist where the direct the direction of film is going at this point which is towards everybody talking and all the all the characters having dialogue and so it's it's kind of wonderful to think of it in those ways as this person who was deciding for a character to to remain selectively mute um and and not finding that as a negativity but finding the the, the strengths and the positivity and the possibility in that and that's when he starts to move towards introducing the whistle and and then in modern times there are a few characters who speak i'm thinking particularly of the um the sort of foreman of the factory who appears yeah. on the big screen and, and gives some instructions and stuff so it's moments where he's choosing um where people start to speak and then we get to the great the scene at the end of the great dictator yeah. um it's a it, looking back and it, it's just such a it's such a it's such a genius to be able to have the confidence to do that at that time um mm -hmm. yeah really interesting they sort of flow into each other almost in that sense and sort of work mm. together as this, you know, I, I watched, um, I watched a couple of the features that I hadn't seen. I think I've now seen all of um, the, the Little Tramp features um, and I hadn't seen the circus before. And mm. um, that was because I don't like circuses. Circuses frighten me. Um, mm. I, I absolutely hate, you know, it's interesting as, as, that I was, we're talking about sort of ex modes of expression. Absolutely hate clowns. Clowns are horrifying, and but that's all silent comedy, really. Clowning mm. is is sort of fruit told through makeup and facial expression and and, and movement. Um, so it, I, I found that film harder to 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 engage with, and I think the way that whenever I have this discussion with people about sort of early comedy things like Lauren and Hardy and Keaton as you were saying and and um and the Marx Brothers although of course Marx Brothers are more m moving into the sound era of comedy um 
the, the reason why I've always managed to sort of connect with Chaplin's comedy and Chaplin's films is that they have these, these very romantic narratives, which is sort of the sort of thing that I like grew up on Disney films and, and sort of film, sort of Audrey Hepburn films where you have like the sort of hapless, slightly rugged chap mm. <laughs> with this incredible, the incredibly beautiful, often much younger you know, <laughs> um, um, woman who, who falls sort of madly in love with him. Um, and I, I think that there's something, there's something very charming about that because the, the, the Trump has such great intentions in this film and it's, it's all about, it, it's just about being a good person and that's so rare. There's so few films that you watch and someone has just done something purely selflessly in the way that the Trump does in, in sort of using the money that he gets to help the flower girl and then expecting absolutely no reward. Um, I mean, you know, whether or not there's sort of um, some sort of romantic intention and what, you know, there's that joke at the end of the film when she sees him for the first time. And that, that, that the, it's almost like something, there's like a loud bang in my head when he, when he notices her but there's no sound at all in the film. It's just completely silent. Um, it's like, it's like the whole world just stops in the way his eyes stop as he, as he, as he sees her. Um, and she sort of makes a joke, like I've made a conquest, <laughs> which is a great line. Um, and those intertitles during that scene are so helpful because it, it's, it's about sort of, capturing what's being said very quickly but without using too many of them because if you use too many of them you break up the rhythm of the sequence and I think that that's something that intertitles can do and sometimes intertitles can almost be too descriptive like there's there's, there's too much information given about them especially when it's not just piffy lines of dialogue it's like the, <laughs> I think there's there's um one of the first intertitles in the kid is um, the woman whose sin was motherhood or something. It's like, <laughs> it's like it's following her in, in, in that way. Um, so I, I, I think that that's sort of why I connect so strongly with Chaplin over perhaps other forms of silent comedy because I'm not really looking, I'm not really there for the laughs, which is a ridiculous thing because I, I still laugh at this film and I still, I still find Chaplin very funny. But there's more there's more to it than sort of superficial slapstick as, as, as what I've been, been trying to say. Um, yeah. Ethan, do you want to sort of respond to? Yeah. Well, I, I, briefly, I think something that you touched on and I wanted to actually chime in on is the fact that I also don't have the font fondest relationship with clowns. And I mm -hmm. think it's again, something you and I have discussed is that there is an element of cruelty to, to 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 the circus clown it's a lot about being it's leering being grotesque hitting others or being hit in in a way which is supposed to be funny but just i always find comes off as quite dark because i read things quite literally something i and i think you're absolutely right there is something almost entirely absent of malice within the little tramp and his behaviors and i think it's especially notable in City Lights, where he spends the entire film, well, obviously he spends his time trying to provide for this, for this little, for this uh, flower seller. Um, but also he is kind of just sort of stuck in 
the orbit of the, the millionaire as well, who is um, who is a very odd figure in this film, who is ultimately raging drunk and the soul of the party, and then sober and very tight and intensely wound and rejects Chaplin at every single step. So it's it's a very interesting sort of sort of charmfulness there in as much as if we are laughing at Chaplin, we're laughing with him, not at him, when he is, um, you know, the, the, the sequence where he's scooping horse manure up to, to raise a few dollars to help the, the, um, the, uh, the flower seller. And there's the wonderful shots of him picking it up very dutifully with his little mop and bucket and his putting it in, and then he sees a huge line of horses just come past the station. He just, he just, <laughs> and there's this, there's, there's, this, there's this physical moment of, oh, for goodness sake. And you don't laugh with, you don't laugh at him for that, ha ha, Charlie, you've got all no. this to deal with. It's just, oh, bless you, Charlie. Now your job is much harder. And it's in the same way that the boxing sequence is just very mm -hmm. sweet. It's, yeah. um, you could very easily have that as a sequence about Charlie being, just mashed to a pulp by his mm. opponent. And you and it's kind of teased that that will be the case when they have the the, the sort of the heavyweight boxer who comes in and does those very, very fast training flourishes, and you just see Charlie <laughs> sort of, oh, that sort of knocks his um um boxing gloves together. But he sort of subverts that and has this sort of very out of shape, older uh, sort of fighter. Who he mm. who he's against, and it just becomes a very a very sweet little ballet sequence because it's oh, them sort of moving it moving. Well, absolutely, David. They, they they move in unison. He keeps trying to push him down. He just keeps bobbing back up like a cork. Yeah, it's it's charming more than anything. Can I just, uh, sorry, Lisa, no, before course. you say something yeah, else, I was just gonna, I was just going to say that, like in response, to, like when you're saying about cruelty, is that. What's so lovely about that sequence is that he couldn't like throw a punch <laughs> if he tried. <laughs> no. um, it's like it's, he's just incapable of it. And cruelty is what happens to the, tra the little tramp. Like, yes. the boy, yeah. the boys with their sort of pea shooters, like like you know, no, he just good. he just the most he does is like turns around and points at them, <laughs> just sort of glares <laughs> at them. You know, he's he's just incapable of cruelty, and it's so rare. <laughs> now I to see films that have no, no aspect of cruelty whatsoever except as I say the world is oh, cruel but he's no, a good thing within it and I think that's probably why as I'm sure everybody who listens to this podcast knows uh, Charlie Chaplin was so popular I mean this was made arguably this was probably one of the zeniths if not the big zenith of his career mm. in terms of the smash the smash hits of it it was hugely popular when it came out but beforehand Chaplin had been kind of the top film draw around the world since 1915 1916 I would yeah, say yeah, and that that had been built I think if you look at things like from what I've read I should stress things like the original film The Tramp or The Kid there's always an element of things go badly for him often in aiding someone else, usually a romantic love interest. Um, and what happens at the end of the film is normally he sort of picks himself up, dusts himself off and wanders off in search of the next adventure. 
And I think that probably there's something very unprepossessing about that. There's no ego there. It's just uh, it, in the in the way that we know now know the term. It is more just getting on with the lot you have been uh, given. And I certainly think for people around the world that that's a universal sort of warmth, which I think really appeals. Um, whereas something like, as you mentioned them earlier, in terms of the beginnings of the sound era, the Marx Brothers, who are predicated... It's, it's arguable that I think, from what I know of the Marx Brothers and from what I've seen of them, while some of their films are hysterically funny, a lot of it is predicated on cruelness. Mm-hmm. And especially... They're, they're horrible to each other. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're horrible to each other, but more importantly, they're horrific to those around them, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. especially the, the, the straight men uh so to speak of each film um and the way and, the, and while there can be some fun in watching groucho tear down authority it's less fun when you're watching chico and harpo ruin a poor mm. pop uh, popcorn seller's cart just for the fun of it in mm. duck soup mm. for example yeah so that's so that's something i really wanted to sort of Mm. bring up yeah and a lot of a lot of groucher's comment you know i've got his quips and his asides are are at the expense of the people around him right he is being he's roasting people quite a lot of often very racist quips yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) you know uh, it's quite uh, whilst put together in a humorous way it is um yeah there is a different tone isn't there to 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 Mm. mark's brothers films compared to the and you're absolutely right there is a there's a sweetness to Chaplin, and he is—he is a clown. I mean, he's clowning around. His movements are clownish. His um, his situations are clownish. You know, clowns are always getting into pratfalling and, and making kind of mistakes that lead to funny moments, but in a very uh, rehearsed and balletic kind of way, which is exactly what what Chaplin's doing all the way through. But you're right. There's a difference in that that the clowns in a traditional sense are trying to provoke an audience that are there. They're trying to get that. They are, they are, they, they're sort of tricksters in a way they are rubbing against authority and they're bringing everybody in with it at the same time. Um, whereas Chaplin is doing that to a certain extent, but he's, he's a more relatable character. And I was reading about how, you know, one of the reasons why the Trump was such a, um, such a big hit at the time is that this was a character that was very different to a lot of the other leading characters of film at the time. Um, it was not; it was unusual to find somebody who was a a tramp or a vagrant or a, you know a homeless person or what have you as a as a sympathetic character. There were not many. If you were to find a if there was going to be a vagrant in a, in a film of this era, they were going to be a thief or a, a sort of problematic character or someone that gets in the way. Chaplin's like that in some ways, but he's because he's the the hero of the film. He, he's suddenly this this everyman character. He's this kind of relatable character, and I think that he hit upon something in that time, especially as I guess the the depression, you know, the Great Depression starts to hit, um, which. 1928 i think but and this was just slightly after um but there must there must have been a kind of a a relatability to him uh as this slightly outsider character someone who is different to much of the leading figures of the other films at the time and someone who is relatable and 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 sometimes you just need relatability for for comedy to hit right and um i think chaplin gets it here yeah i i think um I think you're absolutely right about sort of tramp 
characters and you you saying that sort of makes me think of like <laughs> what what legacy there's really been for sort of other characters like the Trump since then and I, I, I'm struggling to think of sort of similarly sympathetic characters um, but I I, th I think that what in terms of sort of autism and and you know the the things I was talking about at the start and the way that I really wanted to think about this film is is what I've sort of talked about on this podcast before as, as being a sort of autistic aesthetic rather than like Mm. actually so it's some of the films we've talked about and some of the films that i've wanted to talk about has we've very much focused on individual characters and sort of reading into them forms of autistic relatability mm. um but i think i think that with 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 this film um if there's anything i would i would i would only go so far to say that there is something the, 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 the tramp stands out. He's not someone who sort of blends into yeah, quote unquote neurotypical society, right? So he's he's like he's he is set apart from those people, and he has um, the form of empathy that he has that I was talking about as well in in terms of how he sort of reaches out to everyone really, and like he wants to help everyone. He saves mm. um, the millionaire's life, and he he. Um, he then get, get, gets the money to to pay for the the blind girl's surgery, and 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 I think that all of these things are done at almost in a sort of way apart from everyone else. Everyone else is sort of head down thinking about themselves, whereas he's always thinking about other people. Um, so I suppose there are character aspects. So I, I wanted to ask uh, well, ask you, Ethan, if there if there was anything sort of in him or in any of the other characters that you you'd sort of thought of in relation to autism? That's very interesting. I must confess, no, not especially, but that uh, in terms of, the best way to put it is, while you're right, the tramp is an outsider. I always saw he is very much one who seems to understand largely the basic rules of societal interaction. He seems to get by with them very, very well. I think the only times when he really mistakes it are possibly two two of the very funniest, uh, two of the most famous gags in the drunken dinner scene, which is him eating the, um, the the streamer thinking it's spaghetti, which is a very very funny little bit where the the millionaire has to stand him up and cut the cut the tape off, mm. or him going to the millionaire's party, the man the there's the bald man with the crown around oh, yeah. him, <laughs> and, and he and he thinks it's. Yeah, it's like he thinks it's a bomb, bomb glacé, I think. He tries to knock it, and then when the actual one appears, he says, no, thank you. But it does actually... <laughs> the, the, the thing which did I did want to talk about was actually more generally in terms of disability, and that's the figure of the flower girl herself. Mm, right. Because that's a really... It's a complicated thing to look at, that character, because while she does provide some of the most beautifully moving scenes in the film, and certainly I think that the scenes where I teared up the most because it's an expression of solidarity between two figures who are very much marginalised for various ways. One is um, a vagrant, one is down and out, and so is, out, uh, is excluded from society in that respect, whereas the other obviously is disabled and can only scratch out a meagre living through selling flowers. She's nevertheless more of a fulcrum to the plot I found than a character herself, which is interesting. And also it's interesting how 
that character falls into a very specific trope of disabled characters, which is very yeah, sweet yeah. and quite innocent. innocent. Yeah. Yes, and very trusting, um, which is, again, it's not, which, while a criticism of the film does not blunt, yeah. I think, its emotional power, and to be fair, it's a significant sight better than, I was doing some reading on City Lights, and apparently the original genesis of City Lights would have roughly been, it would have been set in a circus, and the tramp would have been a clown who lost his memory. Oh, yeah, and, this, yeah. Yeah, and so it would have, and, but he had to look after his daughter, who I think he yeah. barely recognises. And that would have been very maudlin and very sugar-sweet. Despite all this, I think the way in which Chaplin depicts her blindness is very, I won't say sympathetic because I'm, I'm not visually impaired myself and I know very few people who are visually impaired, but the way it manages to convey it, especially in that opening scene with her, is very, it, it's, it's very devoid of mawkishness and it's devoid of... Mm mockery it's mm, it is yeah. it it very I, I know for a fact that chaplin did that scene 30 times 40 wow, times he, he was right. obs yeah. yeah he was obsessed with getting that scene in the last scene dead on yes and it works perfectly because mm. that scene is so beautifully and simply it's very simple how he manages to show her blindness so i thought that was something that that might be worthy of discussion is how it's sort of its attitudes to the work that the girl as something of a, a plot fulcrum, but also how it does it in such a sensitive manner. Mm. Yeah, I, I sort of slightly want to just dwell on the on the blind girl a little bit because I was thinking in 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 these sort of disability terms because she is um, the thing to note about her is that she does go from being this uh, sweet, naive, innocent but helpless character who. Mm while she's blind who can't earn enough money to live and just sells flowers as best she can and, and everyone seems to ignore her and she can't she doesn't really have any agency as such then he raises enough money to uh to for her to go to vienna to get the to get the cure which we never see but then we see her later on having been cured and now now that she's cured and she can see she suddenly she's like She's working well. She's got a proper florist. She can see everything. She can command the space. She knows exactly where everything's going. And so there's a sort of implication there of like disability being something that holds people back and and um, and just basically sort of stops life in some way, um, especially sort of sensory based disability. And that's you know problematic um, because that's not the realities for disability and shouldn't be the realities for disability necessarily. However, you're right. He does he has just handled the meeting of her in a very uh, gentle, sweet and not, uh, yeah, he's not disgusted by her. He's not condemning her. He's not um, shocked. It, 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 it would have been more so at the time when this film is made though. I, I just mean when the film is made, like I'm thinking in terms of sort of like, like particularly sort of depictions of like post first world war disability right. and, and and sort of you know the immediate image that comes to mind is Otto Dix's um, war cripples and, and and the sort of the the, pe the sort of people uh, disabled people on the streets and mm. and and I, I mean obviously that's not necessarily what's caused her blindness um, 
although as you, as you say it's something that that is able to be cured and is cured within the film and i think i think ethan you're right in talking about sort of saviorism as as, as, as an issue um in in that context but i wonder if you know that actually blindness for a young girl who clearly who doesn't have any family certainly would have been an inhibitor to, to oh, yeah. having to, to having the opportunities that we see her having at the end yeah, when she sure. has sight and 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 you know maybe that adds to the issue of, of of sort of male saviorism um but it's it's coming from a man who himself could you know who, who himself could benefit from from having more in life and when he has that opportunity he has that wealth he immediately thinks mm. of her and gives mm. it to her um whatever the motivations for that might be i suppose one could read something untoward in 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 that exchange um but i i i prefer and think that chaplin is making this film in the most innocent way possible but it mm. is actually just an act of pure goodness um sorry i inter i interrupted you because i i just wanted to to ask you if that was if I, if that was the case and in, in terms of how no. the historicism of the film affects the way that we interpret yeah i think you're absolutely right you're absolutely right and that would be absolutely the case definitely um one of one of the things i wanted to just add on to them my thought at the end there was that um you know chap the tramp character takes a, a particular shine to the to the girl to the black to the blind flower seller and i wonder if there is one of the things i thought was perhaps there is a bit of kind of um disability camaraderie in a way there because if we are to think of the tramp as a kind of outsider character and if we're trying to sort of think of him in a, in a disabled light then we could we could sort of see that if he feels of himself as to being uh, some in some ways sort of differently abled or dif disabled in some kind then there might be a connection there. and the reason why i say that is because i i i was watching sort of was thinking about Chaplin's movements as the tramp and about his you know that kind of iconic walk that he has mm -hmm. um which obviously he sort of concocted as a funny walk in a way but there's a sort of sense of that being perhaps that is a sort of its own kind of disability because he walks in a different way to everybody else he sort of seems to be almost kind of quite bow-legged in a way um and also the other thing I wanted to bring up was that um what this reminded me of was the, this term which I've I've never fully um learned how to say uh, although I've read it a few times now which is um I'm going to attempt it proprioception is that how you say it proprioception which is the the sense that we have which is our the sense that we have of our awareness of our bodies in space right of the, of the opposition of our bodies in relation to other objects and in a curious way Chaplin with all of his sort of clumsiness and all this kind of prat falling and his sort of tripping over things and stumbling and all this kind of thing reminded me of of this thing proprioception and the reason why I bring it up is because it's often a, a, something that autistic people have a kind of relationship <laughs> with it can yeah. be Eve, Ethan and I are n n n nodding knowingly yeah okay good <laughs> my, my, my relationship to other bodies in space is uh not a good one let's just put it, 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 it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't exist for me let's put it yeah. <laughs> Lillian, Lillian, Lillian and I have joked many times about how um 
we are not particularly good when it comes to like just. I've always thought of it as I've always assumed it was dyspraxia, though I hadn't heard that term before, so it's really interesting. Maybe it's related in some ways to dyspraxia, but yeah, it's this term proprioception, which is the is yeah, the scientific term basically yeah. for the sense I, that we have of our bodies in space. Like, yeah. When I was younger, I just could not walk properly. Like right. I um, I walked completely flat-footed. I had no, I couldn't move my feet. Um, and it was it was part of dyspraxia and a diagnosis of dyspraxia that. And, and the way I run, um, I still avoid running because <laughs> I used to be mocked relentlessly for it because my legs swing out to the side, um, right. which which is quite comical to look at, although I have no awareness of it. So mm. I, I suppose, yeah, it's interesting you saying that because actually the way that the little tramp walks might actually be kind of a bit similar to the way I walked as a <laughs> child. <Actually. laughs> um, I, mean, I mean, like the little tramp. I, I, I'm not for sure if he's actually done this, but I have walked into lampposts before to just completely yeah. without <laughs> noticing. So I think there is something possibly in that. Certainly he, he dresses and walks in a way that nobody else in that film does. Um, and it is, it's almost a waddle. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of things I want to bring up. Yeah, it's one, like peng- penguin movement. It is a penguin walk. One thing which comes to mind about bow-leggedness, though, mm-hmm. um, and this is, it, it could be, so I think Chaplin obviously was born in the East End of London during a time when he was very, very, he was very poor. When he, yeah. he lived in abject poverty. And um, malnutrition does terrible things to the human body. And especially it can really um, distort the way the legs develop into sort of a bow-legged walk. So there is possibly something of an echo of that there, if not his own walk, and certainly the walks of people he knew who were basically who were disabled or uh, physically disabled by malnutrition or industrial accidents, because obviously he was in a working class yeah. neighborhood. But something I wanted to bring up about the, the flower girl as well, there is a sense of camaraderie. And I think it's because it's the, it's an issue of sight, which is that before yeah. he is, he is perceived visually by all around him and that causes and every single time it's people being cruel to him in one way whether it's the 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 newspaper boys being complete pains um to put it mildly or the (laughs) the hysterically funny opening sequence with the, the the statue and and he's sleeping on the statue um which is, I think, the only sequence in that film, which is, this is not a, uh, a criticism of Chaplin, more of a, a comment on my own sense of humour, where I was chuckling out loud, was the kazoos. Um, <laughs> but we will get to the kazoos later, because that, that, that I feel like is... I was going to say, the first time I, I remember seeing this film, I thought there was something wrong, that I'd like got a weird copy that someone had like played kazoos over the soundtrack. I was like, <laughs> the, I thought this was a silent film. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I, love, the it's I great. love the kazoos. Yeah, yeah. It's great. Yeah. I'm glad it's not effort, the way everyone talks throughout yeah. the film. I think that would have yeah, gone that, that, that would have that would have <laughs> spoiled it. That would have spoiled it. Um, but that opening mm. sequence of the kazoos is, is fantastic. But the reason that, that, is, that, that was what I was talking about, like mm. in the introduction as well, about like the noises of the film are are mm. so interesting. And you mentioned earlier, like some mm. of the sound effects. I mean, the one that really catches me every time is a gunshot i mean like I, the sound of right the, the, yeah loud noises like that can really mm. sort of freak me out so i think that on a sensory level actually those sound effects can be quite jarring but it, it in a way that you don't really get like normally you'd get that sort of like um those noises would be created like on a solo piano track that's sort of played an accompaniment to to a film um 
whereas it's really interesting the way that sound recording and synchronized sound is being used in the film which is so different to earlier silent mm, films you yeah. know i mean if you, if you think of it in relation to something like the gold rush as you were saying earlier where it, it you know the, the in fact gold rush is a fascinating one because it didn't didn't chaplin re I've, i'm pretty sure i've seen this but chaplin like redid it yes. with a, a spoken soundtrack yes um, and, and his own orchestra and his own orchestration yeah yeah because this is the first i mean i want to talk about the music in in, in a bit um but the um yeah this is the first one that he does a score for but if you see the 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 sort of what we'd now probably call a restoration i mean it's not really a restoration it's just a, a sort of dubbed version because silent films aren't popular anymore um of of the gold rush that sort of is a perfect example of where when you introduce that sound and that narration and that dialogue it ruins all of the the visual trickery mm. and 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 the way that but storytelling said, I mean, this is why so many silent actors couldn't make the transition over to to, to sound film, and you know that that's been that's been done in the recent Downton Abbey movie, and and, and probably probably much better in um, Hasan Avicius's um, The Artist about sort of right, you know, yeah. not not being able to to move into and embrace the sound era um, because it's just a completely different way of performing. I think that was especially bad for. As I think you've touched on already, it was bad for comedians. I think the only ones really to survive the wreckage were Laurel and Hardy, but that was because Laurel and Hardy added a verbal element that mm. complemented their visual quality quite nicely. So if you watch something like one of their early shorts, for example, like Your Darn Tutor, it works as a, as a double act in terms of visuals, but then you get something like the music box, which has a verbal element to it. Mm. And, it, and, and they mesh perfectly because what they're doing is they're taking the, um, the, they're taking the, the implications of their visual nature and bringing it into dialogue. And that works really well. And I think that works really intelligently. And then obviously there were some who really did not do well at the, the transition, Keaton being the most notable of them uh, because... The, something of the grace and fluidity versus the, the, the silent cinema allowed uh, was lost, uh, obviously, and that's something that Chaplin talks about a lot, but that hit Keaton in particular very, very hard. And it's fair to say that his later films, either directed by him or others, never reached those heights again, the giddy heights of like Steamboat Bill Jr. or The General or especially Sherlock Jr. But the, the, the brief point before we go on to the music, because I do want to talk about the music with you, is just to wrap up the thought I was saying, because the flower seller does not recognize Chaplin's, can't see him, he can't, she can't see his walk, his clothing, she treats him simply as another individual. Mm -hmm. And I think there is possibly something there in um, a, a sense of relief in Chaplin's character, in Chaplin's tramp of, I don't need, I, there is no sense of, visual prejudice here uh which i think is very very interesting and the film often i think in some respects though the, the tramp never uh makes any pains to be aware of it there's there's also a sense of, sort of perhaps almost shame on his part that, that she yeah. thinks he's incredibly wealthy when in reality he he sort of is dirt poor 
what's what's so unique about this film for me? Oh, there's a, there's a number of films where this is the case. But when I was a child, I had a um, a collection of film music, and one of the tracks on this particular CD collection I had was um, "City Lights Overture" and "The Statue," which is the, the opening music. So I had heard the music before I had ever seen the film mm. so when the film starts and it begins and i was recognizing this music and the um that overture introduces all the themes of the film i mean there's something Cha chaplin is sort of using leitmotifs in film scoring in a way that not i mean as i said earlier like not that many film scores have sort of survived so we rely now on sort of reconstructions and new scores and, and it's hard to tell always how much is sort of retained from, well, impossible to tell what's retained from scores that have been lost um, and how those themes are used to evoke certain characters. You know, I, I, I always think of, <laughs> it's such a bizarre film that gave me one of my favorite um, things that's sort of talked about about music is um, Dustin Hoffman's Quartet, where Tom Courtney is giving this lecture to a group of sort of, um, high school ruffians um, about um, um, opera and, and why people love opera and he says you know when when someone so when you get stabbed in the back in real life you bleed and someone stabs you in the back in opera you sing um, and it's it's like in silent cinema something happens something a, a major event happens and the music swells in a certain way and these themes come in and it's 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 operatic it's 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 sort of borrowing from Wagner and, and the ring cycle and, and and the use of orchestration that it almost becomes it, it, it's a it's a form of sort of operatic cinema that I think does get sort of lo ironically lost when people start being able to express emotions through through talking is that we rely on all of this sort of other sensory stimulation, um, which is something I feel much stronger. I can know exactly what emotions I'm supposed to feel listening to music mm. rather than looking at someone's facial expression, for example. Um, so Chaplin sort of introduces that with this film. He, he um, hasn't scored a film before now. As we said, he sort of went back and did some of the scores for his earlier films, um, which have been reorchestrated many times. And when you get these, these films now, they tend to be reorchestrated but the, the the city light score is pretty much as it was um and i think that one of my favorite light motifs it, and probably for anyone is is in modern times that he create he has this motif called smile which becomes the hit song that Matt King Cole sang so beautifully and that it comes in throughout the film for his wife in the film Paulette Goddard who, who plays sort of the romantic character and it's it's so rich and beautiful he's writing like standards <laughs> and just yeah, and working them into a score that people have then put lyrics to later on um and I think that's something that's something really quite unique about this film that, that and, and his other films that you don't necessarily get elsewhere Ethan leading on from that um that also well, there's a couple of things there and i was thinking about this because you're right this this it's it's a remarkable score especially for somebody who had never done this before it's it's mm. it's it's mm. unbelievably exceptional uh, and i think that i think the person who he worked with on the score i don't think it was newman but the other person who helped him compose sort of like push his ideas into reality said he yeah, just 
I've just looked it up. It's Arthur Johnston. Arthur Johnston, oh, thank right. you. Yeah. Would have said that Chaplin would have been like an exceptional musician. Um, mm. Were he not a were he not a uh, comedian and a filmmaker, and he has a beautiful understanding of music and time. Um, but I had and it's uh, that use of light motifs is different though, because the two, there are two other there are two films which come to mind both by Mournau, interestingly, uh, which I've seen which I want uh, briefly want to talk about the scores of because they're relevant here. One is Nosferatu, which mm. uh, had an original score. Uh, uh, produced for it on its release. It was lost for about 90 years, and then it was rediscovered. Mm. In fact, I think Nosferatu is now celebrating its 100th birthday, which is quite a remarkable it fact. certainly is. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible to think. But yeah, it was lost for 90-odd years. And I heard, I've seen the, um, the, the, the cut that Eureka put out on their Masters of Cinema release, with the, um, with the original score. And it does not have those leitmotifs. Um, Conversely, one that does use leitmotifs more, and I think that's to do with the influx of sort of um, European composers and European influences coming to Hollywood is Sunrise. Uh, Mornell's, arguably Mornell's greatest film, and possibly the one of the, if not one of, maybe the two or three greatest silent films ever made. Um, it, it's superb. And that uses leitmotifs quite frequently. Um, in very, very inventive and intelligent ways. Um, and then obviously you see people like Korngold using them and Max Steiner using them as the as the decade of the 30s moves on. As it so moves th- on, yeah. Yeah, so I think that in many respects, Chaplin's work builds off of those earliest, it perhaps builds off of some of the ideas that you might see in something like Sunrise's score, but makes, but, but, but makes them... Um, his own and makes them sort of so much more intricate in the in, in the tapestry of the film, especially the use of the one that always comes up is I think it's called La Violetta. Mm. Is is the tune yeah. that that's, that the cha- that's it? Thank you. Which, which again beca- becomes the standard afterwards. Which that does is, has has lyrics put to it. Um, and yes, it does. But notably, uh, it was not Chaplin's invention. It was someone else's. Yeah, and, exactly. And he pinched it and then had to. Yeah, yeah, fought a lawsuit. Yeah, yeah, fought a lawsuit and lost a lawsuit because of his use of it. But again, that's a very inventive use of a conventional song uh, and weaving it into a modern texture, shall we mm-hmm. say? Because it is a film set in the modern day, uh, despite its sort of slightly, sort of almost fantasy world aesthetic in terms of the city itself. Yeah. It's yeah. set in a real world. Um, yeah. I, I can't imagine City Lights with another soundtrack in the same way that I can't imagine watching The Gold Rush with Chaplin's rescore because I feel mm-hmm. because because it would it would the, the, in those cases the music and the, the the image are so deeply interconnected that it would almost be like taking one limb off and it in some respects and I think Lillian will be interested in this analysis in this con, uh, sort of uh, co- uh, parallel. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of what uh, Podovkin and Eisenstein and Alexandrov are talking about when they make their manifesto on sound, when they're talking Hugely, about yeah. when they're talking about removing. <laughs> so, so, excuse me, hold on. Talking a second. of sound, <laughs> sound, just please hold. Sp- sound effects going past. <laughs> the sound effects. A, pl- a plane went by here earlier. No, just... Yeah, a Ren, a Ren's <laughs> kitchen band. No, um, in any case. Um, for those who are not aware of what Podovkin, Eisenstein, and Alexandrov said, 
in the early 30s, they wrote a very influential and very interesting text on how they felt sound should be used in film. Um, and what they just said was, was that they did not feel the voice should be primary in the, the mix. Yeah. It should instead be a part of a much wider oral symphony uh, of different elements of vocality, of uh, sound effects, of score. Um, and from what I know, I think Podolkin was the, of the three, was the most, uh, for, was the one who actually put that into practice most yeah. with films like The Deserter. Uh, obviously, the others um, had more troubles when it came to, to sound, especially Eisenstein. But I found that I was thinking about that while watching City Lights in terms of how what, what, what Chaplin does is very similar to that manifesto. And indeed, uh, Eisenstein was a big fan of Chaplin. And I think they met more than once. So it's possible that there is some... And Disney, of course, which is a huge and Disney, influence. Yes, and, and, and the way that Prokofiev... Prokofiev absolutely loved like the silly symphonies and and, and mm. when you watch like the battle on the ice in Alexander mm. Nevsky there's like these sort of like trombone bisandos like wah, 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 when, a ho when a horse like yeah. goes under the ice da, it's, it's da, so da, interesting da. you talk because <laughs> when I was saying yeah <laughs> when you lose um sort of when in terms of lost scores I'm mostly thinking about um sort of Soviet silent cinema and and, and my thinking about like watching Battleship because Potemkin for the first time. The score is just, they just like use bits of Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony, which works. I mean, like the ending with the finale of the sort of Timps going, but um, it's, it's <laughs> tremendous. Um, or something like Vertov's Mouth Movie Camera, which has mm. like Michael Nyman's done a score, which is fantastic, but it's like, I adore that. How, 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 how exactly, how, how, how useful that is. Because what, what, what I really, and David, I'd, I'd like to, Mm. Uh, hear, hear mm. your thoughts on this is, is, is how manipulative music is mm. and and how this is this is an example and as, as Ethan said there are obviously other examples and in, in something like Sunrise which is one of, which is my favorite silent film um for all of the reasons that I'm talking about this film and more um so I I, I think that I I'd, I'd just like to to think about sort of how music as a manipulator of emotions can be useful for people who perhaps can't necessarily read more subtle forms of emotion is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, yeah I think it's really, that's the, the, that's the really interesting point that you've raised there, which is, yeah, the um, the use of music to convey what what is happening on screen or the emotions of what is happening on screen. And, and sometimes we sort of dismiss scores and music as a, as a sort of secondary function within a film because sometimes music can be, can be dictating our emotions i think in like contemporary films sometimes music gets in the way sometimes when it's when it's too strongly dictating the emotions that we should be feeling at any one given moment but it, it there's a reliability that it needs to be sort of relied upon in a in a certain way for for silent cinema or it just it finds its kind of its moment in that i've just been I, I, as you've been talking about this because i'm not as familiar with this with the score as you guys are i was just sort of looking it up and there, i did found i found a um, a quote from chaplin um, 
because he said he, he was working with this guy Arthur Johnson on um, on writing this score, and he said Chapman told a reporter that I didn't really write it down; I la la laed it, and Arthur Johnson wrote it down. And I wish he would give him credit because he did a very good job. It's all very simple music, you know, in keeping with my character. And then it says here the intention was to have a score that would translate the character's emotions through its mm -hmm. melodies. So he, he, when he was, you know, he was searching around for. I mean, the issue was apparently that 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 with sound coming in, you know, a lot of movie theaters were before that point had live orchestras that would score the film as 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 it was on, and would follow that. Um, but now that that practice was being shifted out, and so Chaplin was having to find a way to have a, a some music in there, and then. Um, ended up himself going and composing it. But I do love that idea. I do love that image of him just going, okay, this next scene, it needs to go and then this guy going, all right, and writing it quite quickly, writing it down and composing it and then putting it together. Just shows you sort of that he had the whole vision of the whole film in his head and everything from what it looked like would perform like, look and then sound like as a whole package, which is kind of incredible. But yeah, in terms of, yeah, the music relating the emotion i try to think of a sort of a good moment in the film where that happens i suppose the ending but um the bit well, that the I ending's keep... pretty silent really oh that's like, true that's actually that's isn't what it? really yeah. stands out to yeah, me no, no, you're yeah. i mean there, right. there is there is sound like when when it fades to the end and, yeah and the credits come in there's music but it's those moments when the score stops it stops yeah that's it <laughs> and yes. time stops that's so, so and his effective. heart stops and yeah. it's just and he has that facial expression with exactly. the flowers sort of like to his mouth that, yeah that fades out at the end of the film which all just worked so perfectly so yeah i, I think as much as we're talking about sound and like the sort of the noise and like when, when i sort of started off with talking about the start of the film and that bustle and those kazoos going yeah, yeah. And, you know and and whistles throughout the film you know there's a lot of there's a lot of noise in this film and then suddenly that all, go, that all goes away and it's mm. it it just brings it to this absolutely perfect conclusion mm. sorry dave could i no it's all right it's just gonna say it's interesting <laughs> that we continue to call these films silent films as well because actually they're they're sort of not when you mm. think of what the score is doing they they're actually very noisy in many ways but it's 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 sound and noise used in a in a way in a different way it's coming from music and it's coming from occasional sound effects um i i the the two bits that, that I, i'm thinking of in my head are the moments this is a really interesting moment in some ways because um I'd kind of forgotten a lot about the fact that that millionaire character is quite suicidal all the way through, which is quite a dark theme uh, for such a, a light film, really. And the first yeah, time we, we are, see we are pre-code, of course. So that's yeah, that's true. That, that <laughs> yeah. is also very true. Yeah. yeah, but it's still quite surprising, isn't it? When you're in, you, you sort yeah. of, it's you've got this kind of silly character who's knocking about, he's doing funny things, he's getting stuck on statues. Oh, it's hilarious! And then he, and then we cut to a, a guy who's putting a rope around his neck and he's going to throw a, a rock in the water and, and drown himself. And it's like, oh, that's 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 really heavy and intense. And then I'm thinking at that moment because we've got, we've been watching the millionaire putting the rope around his neck and we're getting the impression of what's what's happening. Chaplin turns up, Trump turns up in the in the sort of background and comes down the the staircase and at that point we have this very kind of like mickey mousing of the of the of the music right it's like do 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 as he comes down the stairs and then like i think he wipes the there's a seat there and he wipes it with a handkerchief and it's like da, 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 da. and then it's and he sits down and it's a kind of like funny like cartoonish mickey mousing sound situation going on there 
while we've also got this very intensely difficult, dark, bleak thing that's about to happen, um, which I don't think that the film is necessarily making a comedy out of. It's not sort of saying that, that, that you know, wanting to commit suicide is necessarily a funny thing. It's just that the Chaplin manages to balance and maintain a sort of lightness within that scene. And then the, the character of the tramp realizes what's happening and very quickly jumps up and stops the guy from jumping in the water. Um, and then we get a, a very funny sort of back and forth where they both keep falling in the water constantly and saving each other's life and, and so on and so forth, which is all just, you know, very, very silly. Um, but it's just interesting that the use of that kind of amusing use of music as he's coming down the stairs and sitting down mm. lends a sort of lightness to that scene which put, sort of puts you in a bit of a safer position with that scene because you sort of then think okay you know what's coming here he's going to intervene he's going to save this guy's life and I don't know there's something it's quite a complex I think use of emotion in in some ways of balancing sadness uh, tragedy and comedy and sadness and, and lightness within one one area very briefly, I, it, it's interesting you mentioned that scene because that's the scene where, obviously you're right about the music, the, the music is sort of, uh, it is, it's deceptively jolly, uh, e even, even in the bit where, um, you know, they are sort of falling into the water. But there's also something, and I, perhaps this is just me, there is something I found faintly sort of absurd about the, the nature of the suicide in itself. Mm. It's, it's incredibly, in keeping with that character who is also, who is incredibly, I could be very overblown, who's very dramatic and sort of, sort of melodramatic, I think is the best way to put it, because he lives in this sort of intense jazz age sort of yeah. wildness, shall we say. And the way that he plans to kill himself is with a boulder tied around his neck so he'll hang himself while he's in the water. And there's, there's, there was an ex, a bit of me which looked at it and went, it's a very belt and suspenders, belt and braces way of dealing with your own mm. end of life, but okay. Uh, and so there, was, uh, there is a certain sort of, it is, it's dark, but it's at the same time, it's also offset with this certain sort of sense of the absurd, mm. which I don't think, I don't think Chaplin is an absurd filmmaker. Uh, he's not interested in sort of those sorts of flights of fancy, but it's a night. It's oh. it's a little pinprick in the sort mm. of the very deeply bleak nature of that scene is what I found anyway. Yeah, that's so interesting because I think of I think of Chaplin as a very realist director, mm. which is so strange for comedy, really, isn't it? Um, and and you know, thinking about sort of the other modes of silent filmmaking that we've we've mentioned is 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 just how comparatively static this 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 mode i mean obviously what's happening on camera is very dynamic and and the style of comedy is quite dynamic but actually there's a there's a lot of pause and a lot of meditation within it um by contrast to soviet montage or expressionist sort of modes of lighting and 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 and, and of storytelling you know ethan you mentioned earlier sort of um um, Murnau's Sunrise, which is my favourite silent film, and there's a scene, uh, my favourite sequence in that film, which is probably one of one of the shots that that just completely overwhelms me, which is when um, the couple comes out of the church in that film and they walk towards 
they walk together and, and, and there's back projection and suddenly they're in sort of the, the countryside and then suddenly they're woken up again by the sound, by the, the cars all sort of stop and horses stopping around them as they, as they kiss, which is sort of this, this height of emotion. Um, that's very, very dynamic. That's like a singular shot, but it's, it's, it's bringing sort of expressionist modes of filmmaking from Germany into to Hollywood. And, um Chaplin as you said earlier is, is 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 another sort of immigrant filmmaker he makes I mean he makes this gorgeous short film called The Immigrant which is which is absolutely wonderful and has this sort of I think is probably where he sort of introduces this romantic plot line of sort of the outsider being like sort of having having this sort of relationship with 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 a girl who's sort of you know I suppose you're right. They don't really have much personality. That's something I hadn't really thought about before. They're just sort of there for him, which is very uncomfortable. Um, he sort of writes them into the plot. And, you know, the, 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 the female lead in, in modern times, Paulette Goddard, is completely different. She's, she's so mm. dynamic and, uh, and, and, and sort of her facial expressions are so animated and, 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 and different to something like... Um, Virginia Terrell in, in in this film who who does just sort of have that like that one facial expression until the end um, you know so we really know that she's blind and then suddenly she's not um, which I suppose comes into exaggeration right like if you're not able to express that any other way you really do rely on sort of really overdoing those performative aspects um, so yeah, I think I think I think what I'm trying to say is that that silent cinema has has so many different mo ways of communicating emotion that really in a film like City Lights you get a sort of blend of all of them that you get these these sort of there's there's not one pitch that it's at it's constantly moving between pitches and then when it all the way that it all comes together in that final scene and it's just so still is is just like my 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 heart stops <laughs> tears in my eyes I'm just absolutely weeping and i i, I rewatched it l last night and i actually um i sort of had to pause it for a while and come back to it and i watched the final scene <laughs> and the way i just weep watching it is just it, even though i know that sequence sort of shot by shot second by second and know what's happening it still catches me by surprise in a way that comedy often doesn't like a lot of captain's comedy is about sort of misdirection like mm. I, re I remember Stephen Fry talking at the BAFTAs years and years ago it was like one of the first BAFTAs I ever saw um must have been around 2011 2012 and he said something like at the end like Chap Chaplin um Chaplin is, was a filmmaker who would sort of have a banana skin on the ground and the guy walking along and you'd keep cutting between the banana skin and the guy and then he steps over the banana skin and falls down a manhole and I always <laughs> think of that as like Chaplin's mode of filmmaking and it's not mm. just in terms of the comedy but it's also in terms of, of the romantic plot and, and the narrative of the film is that you think that something's going to go one way and it always goes another and even re-watching those films there are still moments and things that catch you by surprise because he is doing something so different with with mm. with um with physical performance that i find so fascinating it's the bit where he's for me it's the bit in in city lights where what is he he's looking at into a shop window is he and then the um the yes the, 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 
sort of trapdoor thing. Uh, that was a moment I had in mind. And then he climbs out of it and he's like, surprise. And then he looks down and, and, and it comes back up and it's got somebody on it. And he's like, sort of like squaring up to this guy. And, and then, then it the guy, just and then comes much taller than him. Like, absolutely yeah, everybody in the film is much taller than him. But like, that's a, that's, just, a perfect, just, that's a perfect example of what I'm trying to talk about. Yeah, Thank you. For... It's just sort of beautifully done, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's a beautiful gag. That is a really beautifully... Uh, phrase gag. in the same way that uh, another gag which I think is quite underrated but I find very funny is the soap one the, the soap bubbles yeah that is uh, that is another very that, that's another sequence of like you, you, it's also one of the interesting sequences where um, something does not happen to the tramp rather something happens yeah. to somebody so, else yeah, and the tramp yeah. has to react to it and in this case, it's of course the, the the poor fellow sort of blowing bubbles at him and just sort of outrage, at like evidently uh, at, at what he thinks Charlie has done to him. It's it's uh, but to to go on to the ending for a moment. The thing the thing which got me is not what Chaplin's face does; it's what uh, Cheryl's face does. There is there's a, there is uh, I think I mentioned this to Lillian when we were discussing the film very briefly last night. Um, and there was this, this a tiny, tiny moment where she touches Chaplin's hand and she, rem- she in a flash, she goes, it's him. Mm. And there is this beautiful, beautiful moment where just like her face drops and her eyes drop and she recognizes him. And I must confess, at that point, I had like a couple of other things sort of on the go because I, I, I have to do a lot of different things sometimes to, in order to, my, my brain works in a thousand ways. But I saw that drop and I went, oh, hello, hang on a second. <laughs> and it was, it was like, it was just sort of, it was like I'd been sort of struck on the head and just sort of, yeah. my that's God. what I mean that's what I mean about a loud bang it's like that, that's it's just like yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's the in some respects, most subtle tick yeah, yeah. <laughs> in some respects that's the loudest moment of the film mm-hmm. because because it, it it strips away all of the artifice which is not to say that, that that film music is artifice and sound effects is artifice but it provides a con it does. It provides a conduit to emotion, shall we say. And that this is just something, it's something so pure and so... I think it's also a testament. Uh, the best way to put it is, as somebody who has permanently struggled in his life with facial recognition, I'm not good at recognising when people are being sarcastic or whether people are happy or sad. And, uh, it's very tricky sometimes. Mm. The fact that I was able to, to look at that and go, Oh my God, she recognizes him. That was, uh, that is master filmmaking right there. That is, like, like, I'm almost, I'm still in sort of shock and awe that just, but then again, he worked on that scene for months yeah. with Cheryl and it went through 30, 40 retakes of her doing the same thing and him doing the same thing over and over and over until he got the right emotion and the right phrasing. Um, but also how brave it is that he, mm. that he then ends it at that point and that that we get the shot of of chap of the tramp um with this you know clutching the flower to his mouth yes. and like with that bright eyed kind of hope in his eyes and then it ends and you don't right, actually yeah. get that clinch you don't get the the no. final romantic clinch i was thinking of the ending of modern times where they where 
the, the two of them are together and they sort of walk off into the down the road into the sort of sunset and that kind of slightly more classic walking yeah. off into the sunset kind of vibe where it's like okay they're together and they're happy and it's there's no there's no hitchcockian sort of face smashing <laughs> no there isn't so, yeah, no. so i always think of kissing in vertigo with like james stewart and kim Novak just sort of mashing their faces their together, face together. With yeah. bernard herman music like doing like the lieberstadt from they're christmas in love. Sort of, like, yeah. yeah they're really in love like waves crashing against the cliffs there's none of that You're it's right. not like it's, it's much more delicate it, it and held, stops. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's it interesting though. In the midst of the emotion. Yeah. And I think what Ethan said about like recognizing that emotion as yeah. an autistic person is so like that there's an element of sort of like, oh, I know what they're feeling, yeah. <laughs> which is a nice thing. Because sometimes you don't always feel that way when when you're watching well, I don't feel that way watching a film. So I think that to be able to create subtlety out of exaggeration is is really masterful and it's hard to articulate without actually watching it to see what i mean yeah. by that yeah and to avoid the sort of bodily messiness of the next step of that you know and, and to avoid oh. going into the kind of like how do you navigate this moment now you know how do you actually yeah. connect it's actually just leaves you hanging within that within that that's, that's emotion. Something very interesting there's something interesting i want to talk about which is uh Lillian ironically brought up Vertigo and that is a film where when you say you know they're in love that is that is a film which is also very deeply ambiguous as to the nature of love because oh, that's yeah, a film course, about yeah. game oh, that is course. a film about gameplay effectively it's a film I'm about more men, I'm more meant I was I'm more meant in terms of stylistic change yeah and, no, and that's the way fair. and the the sort of Hitchcockian or circian mode where yeah. everything no, every, everything is heightened in a no, very absolutely. in a very specific way that I think actually like we're I wanted to talk about city lights and the reason why we're having this mm. discussion is to talk about heightened forms of expression. Mm. There's a huge difference between sort right. of technicolor fantastic and and um, and what's going on. So I agree to so I agree to a point, but there is an interesting element in both, which is both develop. A sense of ambiguity, which is at the end, I think you can read, and certainly I was reading Charles Malan's really very, very good BFI classics on City Lights, and he talks about the ending, and he talks about the choices of chords that Chaplin uses, especially to end, like over the, the final black screen. And it ends on this slightly, I, I wouldn't be able to for the life of me be able to tell you what note it is or what chord it is, but it ends in this slightly curious sort mm. of note wherein um, it, there's a sense of ambiguity, there's a sense of sort of caution, almost. There's, there's a sort of sense of, I'm not entirely sure, where do we go from here? And that was, yeah. like, there's something a little bit like that in Vertigo, which is there is that ambiguity there of the nature, there's, there's a different sort of ambiguity, but in both cases, mm -hmm. the music develops a sort of a sense of, if not undercutting the images, then providing an extra emotional texture to them, which mm -hmm. I found very, very, uh, interesting, especially here at the end of City Lights, where there is that sense of they're looking at each other, they recognise each other, uh, but who knows what will happen from here? Exactly, it, it yeah. is the thing. Yeah, it's always like um, sort of the ending of The Graduate when their faces sort of yes, drop, or, so. or 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 my favourite, the ending of Finding Nemo when Bloat <laughs> goes, "Now what?" <laughs> you know, yes. you say, "Well, what? what? Uh, we've got, okay, we've got to the point." 
And the great thing about cinema is we don't need to know. So yeah. we can yes. just, we, we can just, just pan over to Robin you know, Williams. And you can think about whatever, you know, the way that Disney films always end is like, oh, and they got married and they did happy ever after. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't necessarily need that here. And and what I love about it and what I, you know, because we've talked about some of the, or I've sort of touched on some of the more problematic elements that perhaps I'm more aware of watching this now I'm older than when I was younger and, for, and first encountering this film. Um, it's quite a long time since I last saw it. So it was interesting sort of looking at those aspects and, 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 and thinking about them is, is that by ending it that way, there doesn't have to actually be any romantic. It's interesting that she sort of jokes about making a conquest. Like, you know, I don't think that she's actually interested in him in that way, but that it's that emotion when they see each other isn't necessarily one of romance, which I think I interpreted it as when I was younger, but it's just one of sheer gratitude, mm. um, which, and, and sort of human connection and friendship, really. Um, that, that, you know, I, I, the little trampy really is an asexual character. Like that I don't mm. think that he really has, mm. I mean, there are aspects perhaps in, in modern times where that's not so much the case, maybe because Chaplin's acting opposite his, his actual wife, <laughs> that it's harder to sort of subdue that. But I think in this film, and, and, and um, to some extent in, at the end of The Gold Rush, it's, it, that it is purely platonic in a way that is quite rare for this form of cinema. Yeah. Mm. Quite charming, and, and quite mm. charming, really. You were going to say something, David, I'm sure, but I just want to say I, I find it quite refreshing, actually, yeah. that, that it is free. Uh, even though I'm somebody who does like romance and certainly the, the, the physical intimacy that come, can come from it, there is something really quite refreshing about how not innocent it is, but certainly how it's a meeting of minds more than anything. It's a meeting of minds rather than a meeting of bodies. Yeah, and I like that a lot. I think I was going to say that I was sort of dwelling a little bit on the on the the little well, not dialogue, but the intertitles that you get at that point, which is the <laughs> you can see now, and then she says, "Yes, I can see now," and there's that kind of obviously obvious double meaning in there. But I think what's to sort of relate this a bit to autism, um, there's a sense of uh, her she's seen him being kind of teased by the the bullies kids outside just before this and she's kind of she's almost teasing him a little bit at them before she realizes who he is by holding up a, a little flower to him and, and a coin and sort of you know giving him a little bit of charity as this this vagrant character then she's this this realizes realization she can see him she understands who he is from feeling his hand and as I think where I'm trying to relate this to autism is this kind of idea of like the perceptions that we have of people initially, perhaps, um, based upon what what we see of them or what we know of them. And this happens for autistic people at the time. If you declare that you're autistic, people start to look at you in a different way or sort of treat you in a different way in some ways, maybe you know walking on eggshells around you or just or just being very full of pity or whatever it is whereas one of the things but what but then there's this kind of there can be this transformation of seeing uh people in a different way and and understanding that people are more than just what you of the of your first impressions perhaps and i think that that sort of relates a little bit to to perhaps 
coming to know what is the reality the complex realities behind being autistic and the complex realities of having a, a autism as, as a fundamental part of someone's identity and knowing that they are far more than just this pitiful quote-unquote pitiful figure that people should be sort of sad about necessarily um and i think interestingly comedy is one of the things that can help you get beyond that because comedy is one of those things that strips down the ridiculousnesses of our kind of the frontage of our identities or what we think of other people comedy is one of the things that gets in and amongst all of that and tears it all down and i, under, I wonder if there's a some sort of relation there really between between yeah the perceptions that we have of people and the journeys that we might go on to change our ways of thinking about something so when you Lillian talk about that final scene as perhaps not romantic but platonic and it's more about her realizing that this is a person who has helped her out of the kindness of her heart of his heart he isn't a millionaire and actually the millionaires couldn't give much of a damn about her to be truth uh you know the actual millionaires in the film don't really even notice her uh he noticed her he helped her he went through a whole convoluted process in order to help her and then took nothing and then went to jail like and then took nothing for himself right and spent years away from her and then only didn't even seek her out just accidentally happened to find her again so it's like yeah there's a sort of nice moment of realizing the purity of all of that i guess at that point no yeah. I, I I, I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. Um, although on, on some level, I, I'm, I'm quite perverse in as much as I like people to know. I like people to know I am autistic. Yeah. But, but actually, that, that brings me to something which I was thinking about, is that for some reason recently, this probably tells me more about my YouTube watching habits than anything else. That's that I received recently upon, upon my uh, YouTube recommended a, 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 a grumpy uh, video about why woke, unquote, unquote, comedians are ruining comedy. And interestingly, the, I didn't watch the full video because I, I had no desire to, but it was notable the person on the front cover and the person that made me click was, it was they were talking about Hannah Gadsby. Yeah, Hannah Gadsby is someone who is autistic. And uh, Lillian and I both have... Uh, a very great love for we um, mm. I, I mean mm. I've, I, I think she's I think she's a I think she is a fabulous comedian yeah but I think what's interesting about her routine um having seen both uh, I've seen Nanette which is the which is the, the most famous one and I also saw her most recent in-person show uh, when I was in London yeah and Douglas. I don't know, it's no, the one body, after Douglas. Body, body, oh, the one after Douglas. Oh, okay, right. Yes, that's that the one. All oh, right, that's sorry, the one. carry on. Yeah. Um, and it was very, very good both times around. But there is something there about, I think, that, that her, her, I mean, her, her comedy is based on empathy and it's based yeah, on... I was going to say, yeah. And, it's, and yeah. It's, it's, it's a remarkably, for a comedian who a lot of her work is, a, is very much infused with a sense of anger, yeah. Uh, and legitimate anger at experiences had by her mm. and experiences shared by other people of her background and her identity. She is, she is both autistic and uh, queer. It nevertheless is a very compassionate form of comedy. And I think in that respect, it's quite, though it's not about, it's not pantomime, it's not clowning, it's observational. Mm -hmm. 
there is something I think Chaplin-esque about it, and because it, it yeah. dream it dreams, I think of in the same way that Chaplin does. It dreams of a better future for us, and it dreams for a better future of understanding and sympathy, and uh, sort of a se- sort of selfless sacrifice, if you wish, it's sort of a, a, a desire to put oneself out there to understand others. Yeah, and so. I mean, you could it, be it, quoting the end of Great Dictator now. <laughs> I really, well, I could be because that's also one of that is. Yeah. I mean, of that but film, he that's states the only it. Scene I he know. states exactly. it so so expressively. Whereas, you know, Precisely. I mean, is the ending of City Lights really saying something very similar to that, but mm. without those words? Yeah. And and to me, that's all the more powerful. Um, I mean, I love the speech at the end of the Great Dictator. It's a shame. It's a shame. It's sort of overshared and overused, and 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 but but it still resonates. And I think that's mm-hmm. the point that I sort of started out on is that there is a there is a universality to 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 his character and to his mode of filmmaking in 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 this era, and mm-hmm. particularly in the nineteen thirties. I mean, I think he re- his career is sort of at its absolute peak around this time. Um, it's so interesting you talking about Hannah Gadsby as a, like a modern equivalent. I'm so glad that you've managed to tie it to something in the modern day yeah, because I, I, I can't watch stand-up generally. Um, I, I mean, it's actually probably like, you know, if going to the circus is, 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 is a nightmare for me, then, then stand, stand-up comedy is even worse because it is, by and large, observation observation of neurotypical people so it's not observation i feel and that observation tends to be very cruel it's it's like a comedy of cruelty and mm. of sort of you know we talk about like how wokeism is ruining comedy or whatever mm. like no no, no it's not ruining comedy it's making comedy more compassionate and and, yes. and, and if, okay. if, if you know someone like Hannah, Hannah Gatsby is the only like stand-up show I've actually seen that I really enjoyed not only was enjoyed but really moved by because mm. in the same way as Chaplin it has an arc it has a narrative mm. and it builds to I mean you know Nanette being more of an example of that than, than, than Douglas was for example but like of moving towards a point that really sort of sends home that message while also keeping you sort of chuckling the it's, whole way on the it's way it's so perfectly it's constructed yeah and I, I think that that's yeah I, I, I think for me that's that's um that's what I look for in comedy because mm. I can't find sort of base brute humor in and of itself funny it's not something that I really yeah. understand I think I think it depends for me I think that I think we're another Australian comedian, though one I don't think many will know here, he is an internet comedian, but his internet work is very interesting because it is, it's the exact flip side of, of Gatsby. His name is Jordan Shanks, he's known as Friend of Geordie's, and a lot of his work is based, it's political, and he is explicitly a political, um, uh, he's a journalist, he does exposés, and he was, he's very, very, uh, he's very much against mainstream media and um, he and and sort of certain politicians in the Australian seat. And he is not above um, being very, very aggressive towards them in, in ways that you could very easily concern. Sometimes it does tip over into sheer nastiness, but there's that. But, but with him, there is a sort of a fascination that, that comes from the 
almost the righteousness of his political beliefs and which is meant in a good way he's a very very well he's a very thoughtful very arguably quite a compassionate man but the way he gets around it is this sort of incredibly in your face brute comedy and that i can and it's it's the message underneath i can tolerate but yes i i, I absolutely see what you mean uh, about that yeah yeah um i'm just conscious that we're going to need to bring this to a close soon because we've been talking for almost an hour and a half which is amazing um but uh i did want to just jump in on um, gadsby because yeah i also i'm a i'm a fan um i love douglas i think douglas is a masterclass. um i mean nanette is amazing but douglas was just incredible and I, if i recall from i've watched it a few times now and if i recall from that there's this wonderful kind of intro like prologue that that she does at the beginning where she explains the entirety of what's going to happen in the in the in the in the set that is coming later she says i'm going to do this and then i'll do this and then i'll do this and then i'll do this and she attributes that to her autism she says this is the way i'm thinking about this stand-up routine because i'm autistic i would like to lay the whole thing out for you initially and then she says all these wonderful things and and it, it works so brilliantly because we've she's been she's given us that information and then we're waiting for her to execute it in the in the in the rest of the show um particularly the, the very last moment where she says she's going to do a mic drop because she's got um sensory sensitivity and doesn't like the sounds of mics being dropped she will just place it gently on the floor and she does that and it's wonderful and it's a lovely sort of underline and it and it and in a way it relates to what we were talking about earlier about chaplin how um his comedy is structured because he he sets the things up. He chose, you know, like the way you were saying with the Stephen Fry quote, he puts the banana skin down, shows the man walking and then falls out the manhole. It's this, he's signaling. He knows what you know. He knows that you know something funny is going to happen. Something's happening here. Um, and and then he toys with that and plays with that. And that's exactly what Gadsby's doing in her stand-up structure, yeah. I think, which is fascinating. And it's fascinating she attributes that to her autistic way of thinking in a way. Mm. Yeah, and the whole the whole story of the film is in the overture. I mean, that something yeah. else that I was saying about like the 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 I had literally heard the overture before I saw the film. It's the same way that opera uses overtures. That, yeah. like you you it's the the whole plot's there. Those those light motifs are coming in and out, and the way that the plot is structured and the the opening of this film is doing something quite different to a lot of other films in that it does sort of give you that 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 narrative without without really you know yeah. yeah for want of spoilers it's not it's not really sort of telling you precisely what's going to happen but it it sets things up in a way that i think you're right is is mm. useful for autistic people and mm, absolutely it's it's not it's I, i've always found this the concept of spoilers quite baffling because <laughs> for me i'd almost mm. rather know what i'm going to watch like, yeah. i don't mind the mm -hmm. occasional surprise but it can yeah. catch me off guard yeah. and and i um you know, this is this is something I've I've, I've had arguments about with people around trigger warnings. Is mm. that I will need, I will want, I would much rather someone tell me all of the like difficult stuff in a film before I mm. see it. So I'm so I'm emotionally prepared for it. If something catches me by surprise, it's so much worse and more impactful. This this is why I I read the plot summary of Antichrist I think like five <laughs> or ten times before I actually saw Antichrist. <laughs> Uh, to be fair, that did negate. Did that negate some of the violence in it? No, there's one particular shot which will not be unseen, but um, it did tell. I think I, I'm with you. I mean, I mean especially so. for someone who has like, like I have 
complex PTSD mm. and I have all sorts of triggers yeah. that, and mm. things oh, yeah. that I, well, I, I have to avoid that it's it's yeah. um yeah. it's so important to set things out in that way and I think that silent cinema you know we've said that it relies to some extent on surprise but at the same time in this in city lives there is there is a precedent to that and there is mm. a sort of it, it's gonna end happy <laughs> kind of yes. although yeah. although something like the the circus actually doesn't which is bleak but like you know you think of all of other Ch chaplin's other films bar the great dictator which has a very different tonal ending because it's satire and it's, or verdue um, for that matter i meant i meant of the 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 tramp films oh um, no, okay that's fair so i think i think um yeah i, th I think we know it's going to be a happy ending, but it's um, it's the way you execute that happy ending that's so unique and so important and so brilliant in this film in particular. Well, speaking of endings, endings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was trying to make a point there. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to draw it to a close. We'll have to. I think this might end up being our longest recording ever. Um, but that's great. There's so much to say about this film and about Chaplin and Silent Cinema. Silent, Silent Cinema City likes itself. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yes, watch yeah, the whole no, thing just... whilst listening to us. So it's like a DVD commentary in a way, a commentary, um, yeah. although <laughs> mostly about the ending. Uh, okay, um, so yes, thank you. Okay, we'll wrap it up there. So thanks very much. Uh, thank you to Lillian Crawford for bringing uh, City Lights to us as a suggestion. I think it was a wonderful one. Thank you very much. And for your wonderful introduction, which was really beautifully written and delivered. So thank you for that. And uh, thank you, Ethan, as ever, for all of your insights and your thoughts. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, listener, um, and we hope you enjoy this. If you do have anything you'd like to contribute to the con to the discussion, if you want to talk about Chaplin or stand-up comedy or um, use of music in film, silent cinema, whatever it is, um, do drop us an email. We're on cinemaautism at gmail.com. Um, and if we get anything interesting, we'll endeavour to read it out in a future episode. Thank you very much. Um, so, yeah, I'll wrap that up. Uh, thanks, everyone. Uh, see you again soon. You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project from Queen Mary, University of London, and The Wellcome Trust. Big thanks to Leverett Jakes for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema, and find out more about the project on autism-through-cinema.org.uk. If you have any feedback, comments or suggestions for future episodes, please do get in touch with us on cinemaautism at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening.